0: you know that every time we say that creed, we're actually declaring the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that every person that hears that and says that, they're hearing the message of life. It's, it's the very core of our story. That's why we like to say it, to remember what we are, who we are, where we're going. Our goal as a community, as we started our journey toward Easter uh, in January, when we started with Epiphany, was to help to encourage our community to fall in love with Jesus again, uh, he was God in flesh when he arrived in the world. And uh, when those first um, first followers of him began to observe him, they noticed immediately something very different about him. He started acting like God. He was doing miracles. He changed the weather. <laughs> he changed the Torah. I mean, the Torah was sacred. It was written by God. And who could edit it but God? Oh, Maybe he is God, right? Um, He carried our sins to the cross. He died our death. He rose again. And we know that um, when he rose, he looked at his followers, which include us, and he says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He said, as long as there's time. He said that he would be with us. Uh, He, the scriptures tells us, is Sitted at the right hand of the Father. He's not reading a Time magazine. He's actually engaged with our lives. He is our intercessor. Which means he's a go-between. Between between heaven and earth. That somehow every time we utter a prayer. Or anybody has a cry in their heart. He's actually with them. Every sick child. Every hurting person. Every dying person. He's right there with them. And uh, uh, he is ever present in our lives. In temptation. He knows that we're tempted. The scripture actually says that he attends to us he he feels what we feel he's not ticked off at you because you're tempted in fact he understands temptation because he was tempted in every way and he figured out a way around it and that's why he's our escape in temptation if we'll let him be he's called the great shepherd which means he's constantly attending to him and our call is to fix our eyes on jesus not to let him be peripheral we're not supposed to be focused on being holy we're supposed to be focused on on jesus who lets us be holy We're not to focus on trying to be successful. We need to focus on Jesus, who part of of the experience is that there's more success in our lives. He gives us life and that more abundantly. So our focus is to always be on Jesus. He's never to become peripheral to our faith. And so that's what we've been trying to encourage. Christianity is about Christ. It's not about our human performance. It's not about our uh, failures that we have. It's really about him and about what he has done and about what he is doing right now. <laughs> I love that. Today, our last stop on our in the life of Jesus before the crucifixion and the Easter story that is the start of a whole new idea of a new creation that we'll talk about next week. Uh, we're going to stop in the account of the Last Supper. It's often called Monday, Sun Thursday, which is where Jesus washed the feet of the disciples and where he instituted the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper or communion, as we call it. Now, before we read the biblical account of this particular issue, I want to point out a couple of things. One is just the nature of ritual, the nature of ceremony. Um, unlike other religions of the ancient world that were really just only ceremony and ritual. I mean, uh, you just did things in the ancient world. If you were participating in a in religious activity, which they constantly did, you would do things like, you know, walk in parades, or uh, they used to have li- what they called libation tubes, even in homes by the hearth where they would cook the food, there would be libation tubes. And what they were, they were tubes that actually went into the ground. And so after you ate, you'd throw a little bit of food down one of those, uh, maybe some chicken bones and whatever's left over and a little bit of wine down there because what you were doing is you were feeding the gods that were you know in the underworld that were under there so they used to throw that so they would actually have cities would have big libation tubes in them there's one still there in rome a huge one they used to throw in their celebrations they'd throw food down those things today in fact in 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 um Uh, In Italy, you'll see the tradition of them drinking and they'll throw a little wine on the floor. That's actually a throwback to the worship of the gods. So they would do all these activities um, because they, uh, incidentally, um, uh, one of the reasons that people wanted to be famous in the ancient world wasn't because of why we want to be famous, to be worshipped and adored. They wanted to be famous because they didn't want people to forget to feed them after they were dead. So they literally, they wanted to be remembered so that when people threw wine down or they threw, the thing they'd say it would be for such and so. Uh, this was one of the reasons why they, such fear, I mean, even the, you know, the, the great Spartan armies or the great Roman armies, the only thing that freaked out those boys and made them tremble was, shrimp, was when they got on ships and they transported over water. Because if you die on a ship, you're lost at sea and nobody can feed you. I mean, literally, that's how they feared. They thought they they would be Roman. They'd never get fed, and they'd be lost at sea. Um, So this is the practice. They didn't really care about theology. They just said, what are we supposed to do? Which God demands what? And they would just simply do it. Even Judaism had a a little theology, but most of it was practice. They had these laws they had to obey, these Sabbath laws they obeyed, these dietary laws they obeyed, clothing laws they obeyed. Everything was about obeying these laws. It isn't until Christianity comes, it's the first religion that actually has right belief at its core. It wasn't so much what you did, it was what you believed. But even though that's true, it it really did have some requests of us that we're supposed to do. We are asked, for instance, to baptize converts. We are asked to attend church, to give, to pray, to participate in the Lord's Supper, to serve, to practice hospitality. But what we believe about those things, what we think is actually happening, we're You know, it's important that we have right belief about them, but it's also important that we do them. See, if we're not careful, we'll make faith just about believing. And we'll think that nothing, that anything that anyone does is just religious. We don't have to do that. So I've talked to people that just are so casual about their dues. Right? I go to church whenever I want to. You read the scripture. I remember talking to one guy. I said, Do you ever spend time reading the Bible? He said, Ah, if I feel it, you know, but my whole relationship with the Lord is based on grace. And it doesn't matter what I do. I'm listening to him and I'm thinking, You're an idiot. (laughs) I mean, you know, I understand we're not supposed to get religious, that we don't earn stuff with what we do, but you should do stuff. You know, I mean, if you're married, I mean, you you could talk, Oh, yeah, she expects me to come home every night. And I've got to get up and, you know, she wants me to do this. You you can make it all that kind of like doings. Or you can say, you know, I love this girl so much. I go home every night. See, the the doing should be as a result of the heart. But doing is important. Right? Um, Interestingly... Uh, I think what we're supposed to do is recognize that we should habitualize certain activities that the Bible talks about to help us. It, it's interesting, Blaise Pascal, he was that 17th century scientist who invented the vacuum. And he was a brilliant guy. He, was, he actually was a, a pretty, pretty good armchair theologian. And uh, he talked about this idea that human beings are in time. God isn't. God is outside of time. And God, we're infinite. God is an infinite. He's an infinite world. And he, he basically had this idea. He said, you know what? Eternity and infinity is disorienting. Because we're in time and finiteness. We can't even, we can't even begin to grasp what eternity is. He said, you know, because how, how do you find yourself in infinite, in infinite, infinity? How do you find yourself there? I mean, there's no start to infinity. There's no end to infinity. And where do you find the middle? There's no middle to infinity. So it's a little disorienting. It's kind of like falling free, you know, out of the sky, just falling. That's that's who we are. (laughs) And so what we have to do is find a way to orient ourselves to eternity. And so he said, this is where habits of faith come in, habits of prayer. Habits of church attendance, habits of the communion table, habits of things like Lent—doing these kinds of things—they help to to orient us. They give us a sense of of direction. It's almost like they're uh, a GPS to tell us where we are, or, or a or a you know a, a compass to find true north. It help us to to sort of give us an an, an, a, an axis of 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 of, 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 a, of a point of balance for our lives. Something happens when we do. Things consistently. When we show up, it's, it's like exercise. I don't know a lot about exercise, <laughs> but I've heard a lot about it. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I've heard is that the most important thing to do is show up. <laughs> right? And th- that's part of the problem, actually. But the, uh, it, <laughs> it's just too religious for me. <laughs> I'm, I'm more of a grace guy, <laughs> but, but something happens when you show up and exercise. It, 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 you could even be a little di- intellectually disengaged, but something happens to you as you just do it. Yeah. The same thing is true. Something happens to our souls when we show up for church. Just as the habit, you may not even feel like it. You don't have to feel like it. But you just show up and you'd be surprised. How many times have you come to church, didn't even want to come to church, and something spoke to you that was like, oh, I would have missed that. See, I think the enemy of our souls makes us not want to do things. Because it's precisely in those moments that significant things happen. And, and so something happens when we come to church. Something happens when we, sh- when we say the creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. I think something happens when we, we pray. Something happens when we come to the table of the Lord. And that when we do that kind of stuff, I, I think that, that, that it begins to form us spiritually. Our problem as human beings, we tend to go from one ditch to the other. You know, so we tend to overemphasize. So we hear, well, Christianity is just about belief. It's just about what you believe. And so we just want to make it all about belief and say nothing else we do matters. Or on the other end, we try to make it all about what we do and we forget it's not about what we do. It's about him and what he's doing. But it's this combo thing. I think what's supposed to happen is that we're supposed to do things where we engage our hearts while we do them. And, and and it's it's like it, it, it's like kind of like if you ever gone to the, the like Walmart or wherever and and you buy a little plant that's kind of you know just a little weak little guy but they stick a stick in there and the reason they stick a stick in it and they attach the little weak little guy to it is that the weak little guy can't stand up on his own but he's on the trellis but as he grows eventually he doesn't need the stick right see it's somehow these actions that we do these these rituals that we do they're like our sticks that help us grow or like a trellis in a garden where. Where, you know, if, if, if you put a, a wooden trellis up, it's dead. But you put the thing up, and then if you put w- vines on it, what ends up happening is the vines connect to the trellis and can grow vibrantly because it has something to support its growth. If you take the trellis away and vines just sit on the ground, they, they're stunted in their growth. They end up rotting. It doesn't really work. See, we need some religion. We don't just need belief. Well, I just believe. Oh, you... What? Be nice, I know. Something critical happens when we engage in doings. Second thing I want to say about this business of, of, of the Lord's Supper is, is not just that it's a, a ceremony that we should be doing in practice because something powerful happens, but, but I also want to point out the fact that in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, something gets addressed in us that needs to get addressed in us as a community. As you look at the 12 apostles, the original 12 apostles, this issue keeps coming up that the Lord's Supper ends up addressing. And it's an issue that I think you and I experience. Let's look at it here. Um, The more that, that these disciples, these apostles came to believe in Jesus and who he was, the more they realized that he was going to establish a kingdom. And they got to thinking, if he's going to establish a kingdom... Maybe I could be one of the bosses in the kingdom. And so they wanted to self-promote in this new kingdom. So we see evidence of this in texts like Matthew 20. In this particular text, the sons of Zebedee got their mom involved in the gig. And it says, Then the mother, the mama of the Zebedee's sons, came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, they asked a favor of the Lord. What do you want? Jesus asked. She said, would you grant one of these two sons of mine they're such fine boys would you grant that one will sit on your right and the other on your left in the kingdom she's trying to wiggle to get some power going here and uh, Jesus said you don't know what you're asking and Jesus said can you guys drink the cup I'm going to drink we can we can he said and Jesus said well you're going to drink the cup it's probably going to be a little different than you think it's a cup of suffering but to sit to sit at my right hand or my left, that's not, that's not going to happen here. Those, these places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my father. Interesting point. God gives us our place. It's not us. We don't manipulate for it. He gives us voice. You know, for years, I felt I was called to be a minister, and I would talk to people. And while I was talking to them, sharing verses that I thought were profoundly amazing, insights that I knew would change the world as I'm talking to them they would literally start talking to other people while I was talking to them <laughs> nobody ever listened to me and I, I finally got to the point where I thought I <laughs> it's worthless I you know I, I was like Moses Moses said when he tried to deliver the Israelites when he killed an Egyptian the scripture says in Acts he supposed that that Israel would know that God was granting them deliverance through him but they understood it not. And I supposed that the church would know that God was granting them deliverance through moi, but they understood it not, (laughs) right? And I'll never forget the day I'm standing in a a, um, hallway at college and I was just, nothing changed. I did not my prayer life. I mean, just the same, just being the same. And I started talking to this gal about this Bible verse and she listened. And it, I remember it struck me. I thought, oh, that's odd. She's actually listening to me. And, and then another person came up, and they listened. And from that day, when I started talking, I started getting all these people coming to hear me. We had a little Bible study of 12 that grew to 160. You say, what happened? I have no idea. Something just switched. I mean, listen, it's not for us to grant this. And you don't get it because you're smart. You don't get it because you deserve it. You get it because it's God. That's what Jesus is saying. You get this influence. It's not for anyone to give you. It's prepared by the Father. But when the 10 heard about this, they were, they were ticked with those two brothers. You know why? Because they wanted those positions. Right, so Jesus sits them down and says, "Guys, you don't get this. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them; their high officials lorded over, have authority over them. Not with you guys. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Yeah, this didn't go well. Uh, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave." <laughs> Just as the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for a ransom for many. you think that would have corrected it, but it didn't. Here's another example, another time. This is in Mark 9. It says, They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you guys arguing about on the road? Well, they knew his attitude about this. Oh, they kept quiet because on the way they were arguing about who's going to be the greatest? <laughs> I'm the greatest, Paul. Oh, I'm the greatest. <laughs> So Jesus sits them down again. If anyone wants to be first, he must be the last, and the servant of all. They still weren't buying it. Here's another situation. This is in Luke nine. An argument started among the disciples as to which one of them would be the greatest, right? So Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child, stood him before them, and says, in front of them, said, "Guys, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the." greatest see this is a persistent problem i think it's a persistent problem in the church today now there's a legitimacy about it you can't come into a community without asking the question who am i here who's the greatest here how can i influence this place where do i fit where do i belong it's very we're not just spiritual animals we're political animals we're social animals. It's very important that we address these issues. You need to know how you can influence a community like this. And it takes us a while to figure it out. And, and it's hard to figure it out. I mean, we're still trying to figure it out in this community. Some of you don't know where you fit. Some of you don't know if you fit. And some of the things we're talking about behind the scenes, we're talking about trying to have a little more orientation to people that are coming into the community and trying to figure out ways where we can hear your voice better. These are important things. Who's the greatest among here is an important question. And there's a disparity between leadership and people That you know that are more the followers are sitting in the pews and you're trying to figure out who am I. Nobody's questioning the legitimacy of what these guys are approaching or dealing with. But more important than that reality is we can't forget we belong to each other, and that on some level we're equals. That we're, that, that we're a community of equals. And that when we gift, if one gifts as a leader and one gifts as a servant, it's not because the leader is better than the servant. It's because we're all serving with whatever gifts we have. And we applaud it and there's place for it. But there's this sense of belonging. I'm, I believe that what Jesus does on Monday, Thursday, the night that he was betrayed, is he basically is telling the community this is a way for us to remember that we're all equal. We still have to deal with the political issues. We still have to deal with, with the gifting issues. We still have to deal with who's greatest and all that kind of stuff. But at some point, we can't let that be explosive. We can't argue about it. We, there's got to be a, a way for us to, to blow off steam. You know, you know those, on um, uh, the crock uh, croc books, what they call things. The pressure cookers. And those little things you put on the top of them. You know that little that, that what that does is it keeps the pot from blowing up. Right? So, so there's got to be a in the community. We, we have to deal with the pressure of, of who we are and how do we speak. But we've got to be able to have a pressure release so that we don't fight about it. That on some level we embrace one. I think that I'm suggesting to you that that is the Lord's Supper. That when we come to the Lord's Supper, we're saying, you know what? I want to know how I belong. I want to know how I use my gift. I want to know how I, my voice can be heard, but more important than all, I want you to know that I honor you as my brother and my sister that i 'm your servant and you 're my servant, and we 're here in common together, and that we belong to one body. See now we see this Jesus the night that he was betrayed. this is luke chapter twenty two It says when the hour Jesus and his disciples reclined when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after the cup, he gave thanks and he said, take this and divide it among you, share it. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and he gave it thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them. This is my body given for you do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is is with mine on the table. The son of man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the person who betrays him. And they began to question among each other who, who's going to do this which led to another discussion also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be <laughs> the greatest i mean here we are again right in the heart of this moment and they're saying well i'm, I'm, I'm better than you <laughs> so it's john's account that shows us how jesus actually deals with this and it's so insightful in, in John, he speaks to this problem of wanting to one-up each other. So let's look at this text. It's John 13. It was just before the Passover feast. The night, this is the night Jesus betrayed. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now is going to show them the full extent of his love. He's going to demonstrate through an action his love. The evening meal was being served. The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power. In other words, he didn't have to do this. Jesus didn't have to go through this. But he chose to. And that he had come from God, he's returning to God. And so he gets up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. You're going to see the significance of this in just a moment. After that, he poured water into a basin. And he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, there's two things you need to see in this text. Number one is in the ancient world, it was, it was kind of a messy thing to walk around. It was dirty. The sandals, they had really dirty streets. You know, you, you may feel that your automobile or the vehicle you use to get to church here might drive a little crappy. Their vehicles actually did crap. And so when they walked around, they got the, 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 the refuse of their vehicles on them. And so it was very customary in the Jewish world and in the Greek world. It was customary that when you came into a house, that you'd be given water, right? In fact, if you remember the story of the woman who washes Jesus' feet with her tears, what is significant about that is how intimate she was getting with a filthy job. And Jesus said to the Pharisee when he, he was going through that, he said, Simon, you, you didn't give me even water when I came and This woman has not ceased to bathe my feet with her tears. But see, it was customary to bring water. These disciples wouldn't even give each other water. Why? I, if I pull the water for you, you're going to think I'm your servant. And I think I'm the greatest in this room. And so here comes Jesus. He stands up and he draws the water, but he does something a whole lot more disturbing. He takes off his outer robe and he wraps a loincloth. This is the ancient equivalent to underwear. He got down to his underwear. Now here's what's so significant about this. Jewish slaves, and there were Jewish slaves, would not, it was beneath them to wash people's feet. They might draw water, but they don't wash anybody's feet. The only ones that would wash feet, it was the dirtiest job for the lowest caste of society. It was the Greek slave. And the Greek slave, their outfit was underwear. Jesus throws off his garment, basically unites himself with the lowest of the low in society, lower than Jewish slaves. And he goes and he bows before his own disciples and he begins to do the unthinkable, to wash their feet. He gets to Peter in our text. And verse 6, he came to Peter who said to him, Lord, are, are you going to wash my feet? He's he basically pushing back. And Jesus replied, you don't realize what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. No, you will never wash my feet. This is, be, this is beneath you. Jesus answered a person who has, unless I wash you," Jesus said, you will have no part with me. And then Simon and Simon Peter fashion, well, then wash everything. <laughs> Jesus said, don't need to do that, Peter. <laughs> From one ditch into another. a <clears throat> person who's at of bath when just washed his feet, whole body's clean, you're clean. And then verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put his clothes back on and he returned to his place. He said, do you guys understand what I've done to you? You guys call me teacher. You call me Lord. I'm the top, top, top dog here, and, and rightly so. I mean, that's what I am. He knows who he is. He's God in flesh. He says, now that I, your Lord, your teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set for you an example that you should do as I've done. I, I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, no, nor is a messenger uh, greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. See, interestingly, this institution of the Lord's Supper, it wasn't an entry event for new believers. The entry event for new believers was what? It was baptism. This is a sustaining event, a sustaining ceremony. And as a general rule, ceremonies in groups, I'm talking about even non-religious groups in the ancient world, it was about status confirming. It let people know who they were. It it helped people to understand the role that they play in the insider group. And, And communion basically is a ceremony that says to us that we all have equal positions, that we're servants of one another. I might serve you with a teaching gift. You might serve me with a different kind of gift, but I'm not better than you are. We're the same. And this ceremony says that we're equal servants. There's no place for one-upping. There's no power struggle. There's no position grabbing here. Those are certainly political things that need to be addressed. I mean, obviously, we need to know who we are, where we stand when it comes to functioning in an everyday kind of way. But the reality is here is that somehow we're making this declaration as we come to the meal that we are part of one another. Interestingly uh, when, when they gathered in meals in the ancient world, they had these ceremonies and, and, and it, when it originally started out, even in the Christian church, they were, it, it wasn 't like in a service like this they didn 't have communion like that. The way they had it was in homes and they had a meal they had what they called the agape feast or the love feast and then after the meal, it, they would they would break for a minute and then they would come back and they would drink the cup and break the bread and share communion together. Now, what's interesting is if you know anything about the ancient world and all these scholars doing this work, it's so helpful because in a very real way, the church was in a Greco-Roman world. In other words, it was a a way that things were done. And, and, And in that world, they had meals that basically are what the church would participate in they would have these feasts together and after they did the feast they'd have a break and the children would leave and the women would leave and the slaves would leave and then the men would gather and they'd have wine and they'd have conversation so it was kind of a separated meal that was done like that and in these these ancient in ancient world there were all these social rules and taboos that were applied very very seriously because they didn't have a lot of ways to distinguish who was better than the other guy right they didn't have cars they didn't have houses they didn't have you know clothing that was fancy and different from one other they all kind of wore the same thing so the real way that you could exercise authority and show how cool you were was when you ate and so they put the rich people in certain places, and the elite guests were in the best couches with the best food, closest to the host that was doing the feast. And then you had, you had uh, all of these people that spread out from there. And you remember reading and hearing about Jesus when he talks about being invited to a dinner. He said, don't try to take the place of honor. See, all this stuff was going on. So when the Lord's Supper comes, what's happening is like, it's like they take a grenade and throw it right into the culture and basically say, look at." We're going to come together, slave, free, Greek, Jew, male, female, child, poor, rich, and we all get together and we all share the same meal because we belong to each other. This was radical. It was scandalous. (laughs) The Lord's Supper. Not only that, the meal had a supernatural element to it. They believed that Christ was present. There's a great story in Luke 24 where the scripture says that the two guys are walking with Jesus after he had raised from the dead on the way to Emmaus, and they're going to the road on the way to Emmaus, and the scripture says that Jesus prevented them from recognizing him. So he's going along, and the church has always believed that Jesus is often in our lives, but he prevents us from seeing him. Say, why would he do that? Seems odd, because he wants us to trust that he's there enough to seek him. And so, when at the end of the story, when Jesus ends up sitting at the table with them in Emmaus, he takes the bread, and he breaks it. And he's there with the cup, and it's at that moment, they go, <gasps> You know, it's, they realize, it's Jesus. It says their eyes were open, and they recognized him. And then he disappears. <laughs> we get to believe the coolest stuff. Anyway. Um, <laughs> But, but what the church believed is that we see Jesus at the table in a way we don't see him other places. He's present. So that's what this means. But not only is he present, it, it's the declaration that we belong to each other. It's a declaration that, we, that we're that we together in a unity. Not, not in a unity like a bunch of solo cups on a Walmart aisle. Right? Where you look in one section, there's a whole bunch of solo cups. That's a, that's an, they're all kind of the same but they're not interrelated they're same they're an aggregated unity right it means that they're just a bunch of sameness but they're not in any way a part of one another they're individuated see if we're not careful we'll think that's what unity is it's not we're not just a bunch of individual solo cup christians we are part of a a, a kind of unity that's referred to as an integrated unity and the example that's used is a body we need, we're part of one another. That body analogy is very rich because it implies that, that we shouldn't be broken from each other. I was um, riding on a train in India in 1982. And as we're riding along, it was overnight. And in, early in the morning, I look out, I heard some screaming, and I looked out of the window where I was in, the, in the cab where I was riding in the train. And I saw a piece of a foot. And I, I think that was a foot. Went a little further and I saw it like a piece of, looked like a calf of a body. And then when we stopped, laying right next to where I was, was a knee. A human knee. It's a disturbing story. You know why? Because we're not used to seeing body parts separated from a body. And when we hear about it, it's gross. Uh, Not only is it gross, we have movies where there's like a hand moving without the body. It's scary movie stuff. Right? See, do you know how gross and scary the church is? We forgot that we belong to each other. We think we're independent of each other. We don't need to come to church. don't, Don't listen to me anyway. Just come when I want. Be a part when I want. But understand, we're like a cow tongue. You ever see a cow tongue in the... You ever see a cow tongue like in a... In the, at the grocery? I never think, oh, how pretty that is. <laughs> it, it never freaks me out when it's in the cow. It only freaks me out when it's out of the cow, in the dairy or wherever that is. See, do you know how, how much we freak out the world? You know why Jesus isn't very famous, particularly in a city like Tulsa? You know why? Because the church is so fragmented. I'm not just talking about we're all going to the same building. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about in the heart of each individual believer, whether or not they believe they need the other. We don't believe we need other people. We, we come to church, give me something I can take home, and I'll just do this. Praise God, I'll just do it. Just give me the word of God. The word of God will make it happen. let come back and just tell you how it's happening in my life. <laughs> you need. Probably look at you and you're just creepy. Do you see that knee over there? Oh, there's a foot at that door. But, but I can't say to the hand I have made. Some of you are just eyeballs. You're like, you're like monster ink. You're just like these eyeballs. At least they're cute in that. The meal declared, and we're going to participate in here in a second. It's Paul, he said in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, he said, you need to discern the Lord's body. See, we need to discern his presence, but we need to discern the Lord's body. He said, for this reason, because you don't understand you're part of each other, you don't integrate, you don't understand you can't make it on your own, I need you. You know, this week I sat with, uh, with Pastor Brent, you know, we were talking, <laughs> and uh, we were talking about getting old. <laughs> and I-, I need him. You know, uh, I, I need him in my life. And, 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 and when you hear different people and connect with different people, they, you can lean on each other and help each other. And the way you process things, it helps you to process them. And some days I'm really trusting God and some days I don't as much. And I run into somebody that's really doing well and it helps me. Or, and sometimes I'm struggling well and sometimes I'm not struggling so well. And when I get with other people, it helps me. See, we need each other. And Paul said, for this reason, because you don't judge the body rightly. Some of you are sick and weak and some of you have died prematurely. You've lost your place. You you, you can leave the earth because there's no way you're going to fulfill your destiny anyway. So why would God protect you? You cannot fulfill your destiny as a tongue. As we prepare for this, I just want to read a, a quick story to you stand with me. Ask the guys to come forward, worship guys. This is a story from a New Testament scholar, Ben Witherington. He tells a story in a book called Making the Meal of It, talking about the Lord's Supper, rethinking the theology of the Lord's Supper. Listen to it. Open your hearts for just a moment. At the end of the Civil War in Richmond, Virginia, on the Sunday after Appomattox and the surrender So it's the end of the Civil War. A worship service was held in the historic Episcopal Church there. It was an old church that had a balcony where the slaves of the owners had sat for many years with their masters and their families sitting downstairs. So they kept them separate. The practice in this church had been to give two calls for the Lord's Supper. The first call was for the whites downstairs. The second call was for the one was for the slaves upstairs. But on this given Sunday, at the first call to communion, an older black man, a former slave, began to come down the center aisle right after the first call. Naturally, there was surprise and shock downstairs. But what was even more of a shock was when an elderly white bearded gentleman got up, hooked his arm in the arm of the former slave, and they went forward and took communion together. That man was General Robert E. Lee. There was forgiveness and healing and reunion at that table that day and thereafter in the Episcopal Church there was no more segregated communion see somehow we are screaming to the world we may have our differences, we may have our differences in gifts we may have some greater among us, and lesser among us at least when we're operating politically through the course of the week but when we gather together there's a point at which we drop all of that and we say you know what We're really all a community of one, a community of equals. And whether we're black or white or young or old or rich or poor or male or female or child or adult, at this moment, we're the same. And we belong to each other. And we need each other. The church, before they would do this, historically would declare the fact that they were sinners. Why? You are, (laughs) I am. I've sinned this week. I, 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 was, I, I was short in a couple of spots. You know, I've got my granddaughter visiting this week, which means my wife pays less attention to me. On some levels, I hate children. <laughs> because I am one. <laughs> so I had to do some repenting. I, you know, I had some attitudinal issues. You know, all of us are sinners. I mean, we could articulate your stuff, which I'm sure is worse than mine. <laughs> i'm a sinner so are you and so we say to the lord forgive us our transgressions this is the heart of the lord's prayer lord forgive us our transgressions as we forgive each other which is a community issue so let's do that this morning let's lift our voices and pray as he taught us to pray in preparation for this moment our father who art in heaven was this is really historically the time when they turned to one another and said grace and peace, particularly peace. Because what they believed was it was important that they made sure everyone in the room knew that there was nothing between us. Peace means everything's appropriate. There's nothing between us. And it's important that we say this. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're older than me, richer than me, younger than me, better looking than me. It doesn't matter peace between us and so before we come to the table let's turn to one another say grace and peace to you you're uglier than me but grace and peace to you (laughs) grace and peace to you i hate you just a little because you're good looking grace and peace to you grace and peace to you man Uh, grace and peace And then that night, when he took the bread, he broke it and he said, This is my body broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant. Jesus, thank you. You're here. You're here in some mysterious way. You're here. And so we pray as we come to the table that our eyes would be opened and that we will see you as those guys on the road to Emmaus saw you as they sat in the meal and their eyes were opened. Help us see you and see each other and love you. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen. Let's come and receive the table of the Lord as one body of believers.